0: Well, good evening again, and welcome back to our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, This evening, as we begin our time uh, of prayer request, I want to pray for our meetings to resume uh, soon, I hope. Uh, I want to pray for the health of our group, for Miss Pat and Connie and Ken, uh, for Doug and Jean as well. Uh, We have a couple of families in our church that are going to be moving, and uh, so we just want to pray for them. One of them, of course, is Judy Ullery. She's finally moving out of her old house uh, this past Sunday and started that process. Uh, Then, of course, we want to pray for our students and teachers, administrators. Uh, This past Monday, of course, the governor announced the closure of schools for the rest of the year and that we'll be keeping the distance learning. Uh, Being the father of a graduating senior, uh, there's no small measure of disappointment on my behalf for my daughter that she will not have. Uh, probably a ceremony or a traditional graduation party and uh, at least the the rite of passage uh, saying goodbye to friends that you've been with for so many years uh, she is handling it like a champ uh, i wish i could tell you i'm handling it as well as she is but uh... i do want to ask you to be in prayer for our seniors in high school for our teachers and students and then i want to ask you to be in prayer for my mom uh, hazel warax she did have a fall yesterday Uh, last evening she was very confused today she was sounding much better on the phone so I'm thankful for that but uh, it just reminds me of the uh, distance the separation that we have from people that we love and wanting to be there with them and so uh, let's go ahead and go to the Father in prayer Uh, Heavenly Father I just bless you for this uh, beautiful day I thank you for the sunshine we've had Thank you for the rain and the cooler weather as well. I know a lot of uh, our group is outside doing gardening, doing flower beds, uh, spending time playing games inside, uh, maybe binge watching a little more TV than is good. But uh, Father, I just pray that you would grant them health, grant them a heart of gratitude for all that you've watched over them with. And uh, Lord, I just pray for our students and for the teachers. Uh, I know this isn't the way they anticipated or desired their year to end this way, but God, you're in control, and that means that we're trusting you to give just the measure of satisfaction uh, that these young people and teachers need uh, as they look to you. Father, thank you for watching out for Mom's Health, and as she ages in these senior years, I pray that you would just give her the presence of mind in good days uh, to, to pray, uh, to call on your name, and, and Father, on the bad days, I ask that you take over the presence of heart, uh, that you know what her spirit needs. Father, I thank you for our loved ones. I thank you for uh, the homes that we have, for the food that we have, all the things that have come to mean so much more to us perhaps now in this time of isolation. God, we place uh, this nation again in your hands. Uh, Use us, Father. Hear our prayers, our cries of desperation, our cry of need. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we get back to uh, the book of Jude again after our reboot last week, and to lead into it, of course, I'm I'm still focused on the beauty of Easter and missing out on that opportunity to be face-to-face with everyone, but I was reflecting earlier today, you know, among all the emblems of the world, nothing is as admired, as glorified, as worshipped or even vilified by the enemies of Jesus more than the cross. Uh, it was not only the instrument of Christ's suffering and death, it is the instrument of our salvation. And the history of the cross as an instrument of penalty and torture and death is an interesting thing that really that's not the purpose of our study uh, tonight to go deeply into that. Uh, we really don't know when men started using it though. Uh, the first trace kind of leads us back to India as early as two thousand BC, uh, when Polycrates, this tyrant of the Greek island of Samos, was put to death by the Persians in 522 B.C. His body was uh, then crucified. The Jewish king, Alexander Jannaeus, king of Judea, uh, from 103 B.C. to 76 B.C., he crucified 800 rebels in the middle of Jerusalem, and so by the time Jesus was born, it was a very familiar sight. Uh, Alexander the Great is reputed to have crucified 2,000 survivors, as well as the doctor uh, who unsuccessfully treated Alexander's friend Hephaestion. But the uh, 2,000 survivors were from his siege of the Phoenician city of Tyre. The Romans, of course, used it on uh, a colossal scale. They, they perfected its use of it. Publius Quintilius Verus, a Roman general, is said to have crucified 2,000 Jews on one day at the gates of Jerusalem. Marcus Licinius Crassus, another general and often called the the richest man in Rome, he lined the road from Capua to Rome with 6,000 slaves that he captured at the end of the uh, Spartacus Revolt and crucified all along the roadside. Uh, Augustus is said to have crucified 6,000 slaves once in Sicily. Crucifixion is, is a terrible death of exhaustion, of wounds, and of thirst of exposure uh, to the, the heat of the sun, the drying wind that would magnify the thirst and pain, and sometimes the crucified would last two or three days, maybe a week or even longer before they died. And you know, there's many types of crosses. Christ himself is most often depicted as dying on a Latin cross rather than a Roman cross, but by the time of Constantine in 300 A.D., it became the first acknowledged symbol of our faith as Christians. Uh, He was the one that outlawed it as a form of punishment. And later, Christian nations started to use the cross as a symbol on their coat of arms. And today, 32 nations have crosses on their flags. Uh, The flag of the United Kingdom, uh, often we think of as the Union Jack, has three crosses. St. Andrew's Cross, St. George's Cross, and St. Patrick's Cross, all on the same flag. Uh, Even city seals, like Springfield, Ohio, include the cross in their design. Uh, Through organizations like the Red Cross, it's of course an international symbol. There's a huge 25 foot wooden cross that stands above the fields of the buried horror of the Belson concentration camp. And then there's a very tiny cross placed there by Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to conquer the peak of mountains and it, it is buried in the snow and the ice on the summit of Mount Everest. But the worst suffering and the most symbolic piece of all of the cross was, of course, Christ bearing our sin. Uh, He became sin for us. And I think Jude, in writing his little letter, I think we, as we reflect on that book, need to reflect on the cross as well. The author of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 says this, There are those who have known the truth. These are they that have received the gift from heaven. They've shared the Holy Spirit. They know how good the Word of God is, and they know of the powers of the world to come. But if they turn away, they cannot be sorry for their sins and turn from them again. It's because they're nailing the Son of God on the cross again, and they're holding Him up in shame in front of all people. You know, every time the gospel is proclaimed, those that hear the message will either receive Christ as Savior and Lord, or in neglecting Him or rejecting Him, they will crucify him in their lives all over again. It's the men and women that are caught in the middle of those two, or in the latter camp that Jude speaks to today. Last week we talked about the false teachers, and uh, certain men, as Jude warned his readers, were creeping in unawares into their fellowship. The Greek word Paris is a very expressive word. It's, it's used of a criminal that has been exiled out of his home country, and he's slipping secretly back in. Uh, It is used of the slow and subtle entry of water through a crack in the ground and into the bedrock until a cave system forms beneath a road or a house and then a sinkhole opens up as we've seen in Florida and other parts of the news that can swallow what was once used or lived in as a stable environment. It indicates a stealthy introduction of something evil into our our circle of of friends and family and faith, uh, into a society or a situation. And Jude warns us, these evil people have perverted the grace of God into a card-carrying license for blatant immorality. The Greek, again, that we've translated immorality is a grim and it's a terrible word. It's asylgia. And asylgia, most men try to hide their sin. They've got enough respect for common decency not a want to be found out. But the Asiljeet is is a man who is so lost to what's right, who who is so numb to what is decent, he doesn't care who sees his sin. It's not that he arrogantly and proudly flaunts it. It's it's not simply that he has no care of conscience for who it may affect. It's a person who, by every definition, is almost a narcissist. And these men were undoubtedly tinged with Gnosticism, uh, which is a belief in Jude's day, that because the grace of God is so wide and so deep, so high and so long that it covers any sin, that men and women can just live any way they want. In fact, the more you sin, the greater the grace becomes. So why worry about sin? But Jude would say in verse 4, the, the thing is, they're denying Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. And it raises a question, how are they doing that? How do people still deny Jesus today? Well, there's more than one way in which a man or woman, a young person, can deny Jesus. Uh, you could deny him in the day of persecution, which is coming upon us. Uh, you can deny him for the sake of convenience. You can deny him by your life and conduct. Or you can deny him by developing false ideas about him. A popular group of believers in those early days of the church were these Gnostics that I just mentioned that had two mistaken ideas about Jesus. They believed that the body was evil, that, that matter, all matter, was evil. And so they believed Jesus only appeared to have a body. And he was a kind of a spirit ghost in the apparent shape of a man. They would then deny any real manhood of Christ. Then secondly, they would deny his uniqueness. They believed that there were all kinds of stages between the evil matter of this world and the perfect spirit, which is God. And they saw Jesus as only one of the many stages on the way to perfection in God. I'm not sure how they could see him as imperfect, but they did. And so Jude gives a warning about these false teachers. And, and he gives what I think is, is a list of examples that we need to remember. The first example of divine vengeance for rejecting God's authority, as well as salvation, is in Jude chapter 1 verse 5. He says, though you already know all this, in fact, the first four verses, he says, I want to remind you that the Lord, or Jesus, at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not believe. Jude draws on the example of the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. You know, the necessity of reminding saints of familiar scripture facts is one that ought to remind all of us who are teachers that uh, it's okay to repeat things because we all need reminding. The message paraphrase says, I'm laying this out as clearly as I can, even though you once knew this all well enough, and you shouldn't need reminding, but here it is in brief. The master saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Later, he destroyed those who defected. I like the way the message puts things sometimes like that. You know, Jude's readers should have known very well the story of the Exodus but they fail to apply it to their assembly or to their life. In fact, every Christian ought to be well acquainted with the scriptures and know about deliverance and live as delivered people or as people who expect to be taken out, to be delivered. The Bible is a book for people of all ages, and knowledge is highly commendable in a Christian as well as goodness. Paul said back in Romans 15, if you remember, in the 14th verse, I'm fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, you're full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach others about them. But even the best of people need to have their pure minds stirred up by a way of remittance. Because remembrance is, is, is too often, you know, our memories, it's like the strainer that you, you put stuff into and it holds the gold and, and sifts the dirt out and the muck. Uh, I think of my first Sunday school class that I ever taught fresh out of college, was at the Fairfield Church of Christ, uh, north of Cincinnati, Ohio. Not only was my college professor of education there in the class, uh, there was a lawyer, Charlie Pater, there who had become a judge, still is today as far as I know. Uh, There were elders in the class, and it was so um, daunting to stand up before these people that I just... I pictured so far ahead in the life of faith and belief, and including my professor that I still love to this day. Matter of fact, he, uh, he dedicated both my daughters when they were born. But then he reminded me one day, Bill, even though we're older, doesn't mean we don't need to be reminded in the faith. We all need reminders. And the saints in, in Jude's day and today needed a reminder of a famous deliverance. The psalm said in Psalm 81:6. I removed the burden from their shoulders; their hands were set free from the basket. When I, you know, when I study the world population figures today and I see how many people there are on this earth, there's about 331 million people in America. The world population clock shows uh, 8 billion, 794 million plus people. We're going to have over 9 billion plus people by 2040. And that, to me, is staggering. Uh, India is closing in on China, and by 2022, it's going to have 1.4 billion people. And how great it is to me that God's love can reach and deliver every single one of them. And, And friends, if God can do that today, it's good to remember what He did then. As He looked at His beloved people Israel moving burdens of rocks and boulders on their shoulders and mud and straw and baskets. God said they got to put them down because of me. There was no difficulty that could ever hinder Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And there's no difficulty in our life that can hinder our deliverance from God. Think about Israel too. They went down to Egypt as a family, but they came out of it a nation. And we might be going into this time of isolation as as families. I'm praying that we come out of this as a stronger church, a nation of a church. This nation of Israel, they carried the destiny of the world from its very first covenant promise. Remember back when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3? He said, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make you famous. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. They carried that into exile with them. And the saints needed reminding of a great destruction as well, because the Lord dealt with them first in mercy, but then in judgment. After they were released in the exile, it was actually destruction that overtook the Israelites from plague from fire and serpents and earthquake and sword the wilderness was just littered with those carcasses of everyone except those 20 years of age and under they alone were privileged to enter the land of Canaan and that destruction was a disappointment of their high hopes as well as a fall from a high position of privilege and yet it was but partial a younger remnant of Israel was spared And the judgment of God was long deferred to give more than enough time for repentance. Even today, I I believe God's judgment is being deferred. But I do believe it's imminent. The delay is for repentance and for salvation today. But I have a lot of people ask me, Bill, do you think this is a sign of the end of the world? I mean, obviously, Scripture talks about times like this. And I don't know when the end of the world is going to come. But I do believe that it is imminent. You know, punishment cannot be avoided by privileges that are being abused. God had delivered Israel, but they chose, according to Jude, not to believe. Well, the saints also needed to be reminded of a great cause of that destruction as well. In verse 6, it said, Those who had formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Haven't you found the difficulties in life uncover? An untrusting heart. You never know how much you're depending upon God until God is all you have to depend upon. Unbelievers forsake their own mercies and they're their own worst enemies. Uh, there is no personal folly like unbelief itself. Remember in John 20 verse 29 when Thomas refused to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and until he could see the nail prints And Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The end of unbelief is utter and absolute loss and destruction. There is no reason not to believe. Well, Jude goes on to give a second example of divine vengeance. In verse 6, he says, And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling... These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. It's the case of the fallen angels that we don't often address in the church. There is definitely an existence of evil angels or or demons. It's expressly asserted in Scripture. Uh, and, And there's no more greater moral difficulty in understanding the existence of them than it is in understanding why there are evil men. Uh, they are spoken of in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And, and Peter said, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. You know, he gives reference to them. In Luke eight thirty. it's perhaps the most infamous encounter between Jesus and a, a demon-possessed man. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into the man. Paul even asked the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, three, Do you not know that we will judge angels? Uh, their existence is, is scriptural. And their revolt and defection from God is, is scriptural as well. It said in Jude, They did not keep their positions of authority, but they abandoned their proper dwelling. Now we all know that pride is, is a sign apparently as the cause of Satan's fall and that of his followers. When picking leaders, Timothy would be warned in 1 Timothy 3.6 about men, and he would say that you know, he must not be a recent convert, or he might become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. But the allusion here is rather to the angels rejecting their high dignity position in submission to God and departing from their position in heaven as a consequence of the alienation caused by pride. One of my personal questions as, as I look back is, you know, why would God ever allow, or why would he ever even create angels who could sin? But when we ask exactly why did God allow it, we can only offer uh, opinions. God allowed angels, including Satan, to sin, perhaps because it was within his sovereign plan to do so. I mean, I believe God is, is the, the Lord of all history that nothing happens outside of his will or control. And maybe God allowed angels to sin so that the Lord God could perform the greatest act of love, namely laying down his life for others. Remember what Jesus said in John 15:33 was the greatest act of love? Greater love has no man than this than to what? Lay down his life for his friends. First John 4.8 tells us that God is love, and John 3.16 famously tells us that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, and we could see that the nature of love is always other-centered, to be sacrificial and even to sacrifice one's life for another. Since the Bible says God is love, maybe it was necessary for angels to fall so sin could enter the world and so that Jesus in the Incarnation could die And by that death, redeem you and me. Some might argue that maybe God allowed the angels to fall because it was according to their free will. In other words, they're just like us. They had free will choosing to stay with God or not stay with God. And the Lord allowed them to make that choice. Again, we don't know why God specifically allowed the angels and Satan to fall or to allow sin to enter into existence. But we can trust this. God in his great sovereignty and wisdom, he allowed it for reasons that ultimately will bring glory to him. It will vindicate his purity, it will demonstrate his love, and it will show his absolute power above evil. The revolt of these angels was one simply to dishonor God. They slighted the place of his glory. Now the motive for Satan's rebellion may very well be found if you go back into the Old Testament in Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. How you've fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn! You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I'll make I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. The angels followed in that same desire. Well, they were also the highest order of his creatures, and they might have found their happiness in obedient service. Psalm 8, 5, that's later quoted in Hebrews 2, 7 says, Lord, you've made them a little lower than the angels, us, you and me, and crown them with glory and honor. But with the evil angels, an evil nature can't endure, nor can it either enjoy the joys or the holiness of heaven. And it's a sin for the highest being to exempt himself from service. Hebrews 1.14 says, Aren't all angels, angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? It's the angels who chose to serve themselves that were cast out of heaven. Those who remain, remain as messengers of God that serve you and me as well. Well, then we're, we're told there they have their habitation in, in heaven. But look at the punishment of the, the evil angels. It said, the, these he's kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. I think that there is a present judgment for them. They're kept in these everlasting bonds, these chains under darkness. That's the bond of God's power. Think of all the times that Jesus spoke about how the strong man had to be bound uh, by the one that was stronger than he. Or that Satan, the serpent, was bound for a thousand years. Only God has the power to bind those evil forces. They're also the bonds of sin as if to account for the dread consistency of him. 1 John 3.8 says the one who does what's evil is of the devil because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. There are also the bonds of a guilty conscience which causes the devils to tremble as they believe. James 2.19 declares even the demons believe and tremble. And yet the restraint or torment cannot reform them. We should also remember though that the devils cannot hurt us unless we get tangled up in their chains. Calvin used to say wherever they go they drag with them their own chains and they remain involved in darkness. The darkness under which they're held points to their miserable condition as signified by their separation from the presence of God brought about as it was by their own decision that is utterly irrevocable. So all that is present judgment for them, but there's also a future judgment. It says they are kept for judgment on the great day. The Lord will judge the angels in that day with the saints as his helpers. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Now that, that boggles my mind, and I'm not sure I can fully understand God's inclusion of us in, in that assessment. But that's what the scripture says. You know, you talk to some of the people that work at the Large Hadron Collider, uh, the world's largest and most powerful particle accelerator in Geneva, Switzerland. It's a 27-kilometer ring of these superconducting magnets that has to be chilled to minus 271.3 Celsius. That is a temperature colder than outer space with a number of accelerating structures to boost the energy of these particles along the way. And they look in depth and and look into what makes up energy. The man who explains what they do there, the one who writes the proposals for government grants said this. He said, our mission is to uncover what the universe is made of and how it works. We study the depths of energy. Why do particles have mass? What is the nature of dark matter in the universe? Why did matter triumph over antimatter in the first moments of our universe, making even our existence possible? All of these questions that they don't have answers for, and then I read passages like Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How unsearchable His paths beyond tracing out the future judgment that god has over these evil angels over those who choose evil in their lives is just unfathomable we're told in scripture the devil will be cast into the lake of fire we're told there'll be no more seduction of the wicked and that means no further hurt to god's elect and jude says we need to remember these examples Not only the deliverance of those from the exodus, but those who died in their disbelief. Not only the angels who were given a great honor, but chose to disobey. But he gives a third example of divine vengeance in verse 7. He gives the case of the cities of the plain. Now morally, we talked about them in depth last week, so I'm not going to go into them much today. But it says in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the cause of their punishment, you know, I I look at what happened. You know, God took these people, including Lot, Abraham's nephew, and placed them in the land of of Sodom. You know, Sodom is often compared to, uh, in ancient texts, as the garden of the Lord. And God sometimes assigns the most fertile places to the greatest of sinners. We have a great honor and a great blessing to live in the country in which we live. And yet sometimes I think it's an opportunity. Either we will turn to God in gratitude and service and obedience, or it's a fertile place for the greatest sin to take place. Prosperity often becomes an occasion for much wickedness and impiety. the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities of the plain, they were guilty of of two sins that were named, extramarital sex and unnatural crimes. They were personal signs of of a wicked character on the inside, because they were sins not just against the body, but against the soul. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, or do you not know? Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, Paul said, neither the sexually immoral Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men will ever see the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality because all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. They were also social sins. These sins didn't just affect the individual and their personal choice. It affected the family it affected society. But they were irrespective or disrespectful towards God kind of sins. I know all sins are in the truth, but 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall they then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. They were sins not to be named among the saints. Ephesians 5.3 says, But among you... There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And the causes of these sins were interestingly outlined in Ezekiel sixteen forty nine, many, many years after the cities were destroyed. But the prophet Ezekiel, again, chapter 16, verse 49 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant they were overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That's, just, that's incredible to me. That it would be their prosperity that led to their sin. That they would be negligent and lazy. And that's part of the reason for the severity of their punishment. In verse 7, Jude said, They serve an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. That could be an allusion to the rain of fire that destroyed the cities or the volcanic nature of the soil that underlies their present site. But that destruction is just a type of a worse destruction that overtook the guilty inhabitants. You see, the worst destruction comes in the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 22.15, it says, Outside of the city of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters everyone who loves and practices falsehood Hebrews 12:29 says our god is a consuming fire the justice of god is not abolished by his mercy yet the rejection of the gospel is a worse sin than that of the sodomites when jesus sent out his 12 to minister in the villages surrounding galilee including judas jesus, jesus said in matthew 10:15 That for those towns to reject the gospel, he said, Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. How much more for you and I today if we treat the good news of Jesus Christ lightly? Well these Sodomites as well. They were punished as an example. I think God showed for all of Israel to come, for all the world to come, his hatred of sin. He showed his desire to prevent our ruin and the angels that he sent and the, the attempts he had to save a lot and the angels that visited him and his family. It also shows how inexcusable is sin in the face of knowing examples like that today. We retain within our laws the words sodomy, sodomites. How in- inexcusable is it? Then we also need under the gospel the restraint of fear as well as the powerful attraction of love. You know, I, I, I feared my father. I feared his belt. I feared his hand of judgment. But it did not diminish the love that I had for him. I know the same sins recur in every age and in every generation. But I, that's one more reason they need to be very pointedly condemned in each generation. The sins of the sodomites, they're more heinous if committed in this day and age Because not only do we have the understanding of the Old Testament, we have all the light and privilege of the New Testament and of Jesus Christ. So let's be thankful to God for such warnings against sin. But look how far ungodly people go in Jude verse 8. He says there in the very same way on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority. They heap abuse on celestial beings. I mean, think about how damaging an abusive tongue is in friendships and in families. Great is the excess of an abusive tongue. Reckless people protest powers and authorities and decisions they have absolutely no knowledge of. It's a great sin to put dishonor on celestial beings that, that God is so highly honored. I think of Paul again in Romans fourteen four when he said, Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord's able to make them stand. But the fountain from which all of these sins flow, according to Jude, is in their dreams. This threefold manifestation of an evil mind has its origins in the self-delusion of sinfulness. And their dreaming implies, one, they live in an unreal world. They've got no concept of the serious nature of sin. Or of holiness, and two, they're so unconscious of the damage it does to their immortal soul; they're insensible to all the warnings of coming judgment. And dreaming is a dangerous thing in this respect, because, like the godless man, a sinner is perilously living close to the edge of the cliff. As Zophar the Namathite replied in Job chapter twenty, verse eight: "Like a dream, he will fly away; no more to be found." banished like the visions of the night. Well, I want to finish our time today with a very important uh, illustration that I've kind of promised in the past. Okay, we're going to cover this some just because it's unique. Jude then refers to this extraordinary incident that's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. You can search. You're not going to find it. But it's evidently contained in the old Jewish traditions uh, respecting a contest that Michael the archangel had with the devil. And he does this as an illustration, uh, an angelic example of, for, for us to imitate as humans. Verse 9 of Jude says But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, he didn't dare himself to condemn him for slander, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. So the archangel Michael, uh, we've heard his name before, so who was he? We know. Uh, that Michael appears as one of the chief princes who stood up for God's people against the Persians. Uh, he was an angel that appeared to Daniel uh, in a vision by the Tigris River. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it says, The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Uh, anytime you see Michael, he's a warrior. He's fighting. He's fighting. Revelation 12:7 says Then war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. He's probably the archangel whose voice is going to be heard one day when our Lord descends for his his return. 1 Thessalonians 4:16 says the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, he's probably at the head of the good angels. Uh, the devil is represented at the head of the evil angels. And I would propose to you, as I've done before, if Satan is organized into levels, as Ephesians 6 tells us, that we, we battle spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, powers in this dark world, authorities and rulers, it's very likely a false image of God's real order. And, and some people will say there are uh, four uh, hierarchies of angels. Some will say there's nine. Uh, it, it depends whether you see some of these as virtues of the angels or actual angels. But most all will agree there's at least four. There's the seraphim, the cherubim, the archangel, and the angel. Now, if you want all nine, it's the seraphim, the cherubim, thrones, dominions, virtues, powers, principalities, archangel, and angels. But again, from the scriptures. I feel more comfortable just sticking with the four. Michael is, in rank and purpose, the, one of the most active and dutiful servants of God. But you see the strife taking place between Michael and the devil. Uh, and the incident refers to an account after uh, of necessity after Moses' death. So what do we know for sure? Okay, If we go back to the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, we know that that God buried Moses, (laughs) not the people of Israel, not Joshua and a helper. According to Deuteronomy, Moses ascended Mount Nebo so that he could view the land of Canaan that God said he would never enter. And it says in Deuteronomy 34, six, and Moses, the servant of the Lord died there in Moab, as the Lord had said, he buried him in Moab, he being the Lord in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Maybe it's for this exact purpose. The reason usually assigned for the secrecy of a burial is so that that the Israelites, you know, or somebody else would come to worship the body of this great lawgiver, even though you don't usually see that happening among Israel. Uh, One explanation for this war over Moses' body could be this. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 29 through 33, you see two figures appearing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see Moses. And Elijah. They're called two men. And Elijah was certainly uh, in the body, a glorified body, no doubt. Does not the similarity of statement imply that Moses was likewise in the body? It would imply that Moses was raised up after his burial, but before his body saw corruption. Maybe he was taken to heaven like Elijah or Enoch. God buried him. The archangel watched over him so that he would not see corruption. Uh, if the devil then, according to Hebrews 2.14, had the power of death, the contest may have arisen from the effort of Michael on the one side to secure the body of Moses from decay and corruption until the moment when he and his angels would carry it to heaven, and the effort of the devil, on the other hand, to inflict the last decay of death upon this great Israelite. Now that's a plausible explanation more than many that I've, I've read, um, but we really don't know. Again, all we know for sure is that God buried Moses. Also, you know, Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser. And maybe the battle is because Satan is accusing Moses, who has just died, because he's, he's offended that God is taking him to his side because of his prior sins. And maybe this is the period of accusation, specifically the one at Meribah, that prevented Moses from entering the promised land. Uh, back in Deuteronomy 32 verses 48 through 52 or maybe he's arguing because he was a murderer and and Satan's bringing up how he killed the Egyptian in Exodus 2. But the conflict suggests that sin and holiness, they must necessarily always come into conflict where they encounter each other. They cannot exist in the same place. In regards to the the additional historical information about this passage, uh, it is thought that Jude may have referred to an extra biblical account known in the first century it would have been available to him certainly called the assumption or the ascension of Moses now we we've talked before in church about the apocrypha uh, we've talked about the pseudepigrapha and I know those are big words but uh, the uh, the bible itself today is a canon of books it, it's already established 39 books of the old testament 27 of the new uh, but in the Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox Church, you will find a group of books called the Apocrypha that's either between the Old and New Testament or the Apocrypha sometimes spread throughout the Old Testament. Uh, pseudopigri- pseudopigraphal books, on the other hand, they're not accepted in their entirety by any church. Uh, only individual books can be considered sacred by Eastern churches like in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. The Assumption of Moses, or the Testament of Moses, is a first century, now watch the dates on this, it's a first century Jewish apocryphal pseudepigraphical work, meaning it's a mythical fiction and a false writing. Nobody believes this to be an accurate or biblical account that should be included in the Bible. So why would Jude use it? Well, this book, you know, it supports, uh, it purports, excuse me, to contain certain prophecies, that Moses revealed to Joshua before he died, something that he wanted Joshua to carry on in his leadership of the Israelites after him. And it's got a lot of apocalyptic themes, but it's characterized as a testament. In other words, the final speech of a dying person, that being Moses. We only have it because it's known from a single 500 AD manuscript that's incomplete, and it's written in Latin. Not in the Old Testament Hebrew, not in Aramaic, not even in Greek. Uh, but it's in 500 A.D. The church has been around for 500 years. Uh, it's discovered by Antonio Seriani in the Biblioteca Ambrosiana in Milan, Italy, in the mid-1800s. And it's only published first in 1861. <laughs> now, most scholars believe the story was written in the first century A.D., The text, it's 12 chapters, basically it talks about Moses dying, but it also talks about some of the history, all the way up to um, the Hellenization that came with Alexander the Great, and uh, the Antiochus Epiphanes in that Middle Testament period between the Old and New Testament. It talks about uh, the Hasmonean kings and Herod the Great with his sons, all the way up to the partial destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., uh, chapter 7 is, is way too fragmented. We don't have a clue what it's about other than to say it's probably about the end of days. Chapter 8 talks about the Jews being persecuted by hypocrites. Chapter 9 is the narrative of a, of a Levite named Taxo and his seven sons who rather than give in to Greek influences, they seal themselves into a cave to die for their faith. Uh, an interesting faith story. Again, not biblical. Chapter 10 contains an eschatological hymn or a hymn at the end of time. It talks about how God will arise to punish the Gentiles rather than redeeming them. So it's completely against what the Bible says, but that God will uh, exalt Israel and send a great priest messenger to work vengeance for Israel. And the last two chapters deal with Moses exhorting Joshua, don't be afraid. You know, History is just going to be an outlay of God's covenant and plan. The most striking feature of this little Assumption of Moses book Uh, is the scathing condemnation of the priesthood before, during, and after the Maccabean period between the book of Malachi in the Old Testament and the Gospels in the New, and the unsparing uh, deprecation of the temple services. Now, why would that be? Well, remember who's in charge of the temple and the priesthood in Jesus' day. It's the Sadducees. And what do they not believe in? The resurrection. They don't believe in it at all. And so, likely The Assumption of Moses in that first century was penned by a Pharisee uh, to get back at the Sadducees and make some of their own rules. And even though most of it is lost today, the account apparently included a description of Michael and Satan disputing over the body of Moses that would fit the context of Jude 1 9. Now please, that does not mean that this lost book, The Assumption of Moses, is an inspired book. Rather what it means is the story is known to Jude's readers. And it appears Jude writing by his inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Second Peter you know one twenty through twenty one, all scriptures God breathed and inspired, he used this particular account as an illustration. He uses it an illustration of respect that the Archangel Michael had in contrast with the disrespect of the false teachers whose pride would lead them in, into a great great deal of sin. Well, let's wrap this up today. I want you to note that in this account Michael overcomes the devil. You know, I, I'm reminded again and again of Scripture, he that's in us is greater than he that is in this world. God is a great Savior, and any strength that the angels display comes from God. Uh, I think of the story of D Day in Normandy. A French child called Beth was shot by the Nazis as they fled, and the bullet lodged close to her heart and a canadian soldier named al jeopardized his life he he picked her up out of a ditch he took her to an emergency field hospital and they hadn't seen each other since he dropped her off but on the 40th anniversary of d-day al returned to normandy and when beth now at that point in time a beautiful middle-aged woman when she saw him she had one word bursting from her lips as tears poured down her face the word was Savior. We have a Savior that is in control of every victory. And in this archangel striving with the devil, it says he disputed with Satan, but he didn't himself dare to condemn him with slander. You know, he didn't offer defamation, false accusation, character assassination. He simply said, The Lord rebuke you. For him to do anything more would have been inconsistent with the angelic work to judge the devil. Uh, There is no cowardice in Michael not daring to sin. What's wrong for angels, friends, it it could not be right for us to do either. Michael left the decision of the strife absolutely in God's hands, and it will always be God's power that restrains the evil work and the work of Satan himself. As a side note, It's instructive to us in our terms of dealings with Satan and demons. Rather than try to stand against them in our own authority, we're to seek the Lord's power against them. We call out to Him to intervene and trust in His power and authority. The thought that we have a God into whose hands we can commit our cause, it ought to make us more patient, more forbearing, and more forgiving. Well, I hope that helps you understand a little bit more this portion of jude uh, and as we go on into what will be the uh, sixth in our series of lessons from the letter of jude uh, i want you to just kind of continue to read ahead read through the book once a week Uh, it's not very long at all of course but uh, i want to pray for your blessing so let's close heavenly father uh, i want to thank you so much for the examples that jude gave us the examples of judgment and the examples of what the right responses are we only want to live to please you and, Father, to do that, we'll need your strength. We'll need your ongoing guidance, your grace, and your power. Father, I pray for my friends, my my st- students of the Bible right along with me, that you would teach us by your Spirit. That, Father, you'd be pleased with how we apply your word in our everyday conversations in life with our children, with our spouses, with everyone. God, you're worthy of it all, and I just bless you for being the light of life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless each of you. Have a wonderful week.